you have a Bible, you can navigate over to Psalm 39 with me. Psalm 39, we'll look at the last two verses, which are the last section of this first psalm that are dedicated to Jejuthin. As we've learned over the last few weeks, Jejuthin was the master musician. He was given special responsibilities in King David's administration, and he is forever associated with three songs in our Psalter, Psalm 39, Psalm 62 and Psalm 77, and we are going through those three psalms to see what they're all about. And we've been taking a look at this first song for the last few weeks, the first one that was given to him, dedicated to him, and seeing some of the themes that David wrote in it, themes like the brevity of life and how God corrects and disciplines his people. In tonight's verses, David is going to close with a prayer, not of praise or thanksgiving, but a prayer of desperation, really. One of the great and helpful lessons from reading all of David's psalms is that we can and should always pray with absolute honesty to the Lord, without trying to varnish or mask ourselves in any way. Uh, It's just human nature, right? That's one of the very first things that our uh, ultimate parents, Adam and Eve, did, right? As soon as they had an issue uh, between them and God. They had fallen in sin. What did they do? They went and hid and masked themselves and thought for some reason that God wouldn't know where they were or what they had done. And uh, that's just part of the fallen human nature now, that we have a tendency to draw away and try to hide and, and try to mask ourselves even from the watchful gaze of God our Creator. Um, even though we know that He knows everything and that He sees us and that we also know that He loves us and that He's not rejected us. And so David's a great example, at least to me, of just absolute honesty before the Lord in prayer. And so if we want to thank the Lord, man, thank the Lord big. Thank him honestly. Thank him as much as you can. And the same with adoration in your prayer or requests in your prayer. You know, ask big of the Lord. Uh, I think sometimes maybe we are worried to do something like that, to ask God of big things for our world or for our community or for our own lives. Uh, But we can ask big, we can thank big, we can praise big. But this principle of honesty in prayer is also true in those times when we are frustrated or discouraged uh, in our lives. The Lord isn't afraid to receive those kind of prayers. Uh, and he's not angry with us when we offer them, right? I mean, and that, that's clear from the Psalms especially. C.S. Lewis once wrote this. He said, we must lay before him what is in us, not what ought to be in us. And I think a lot of times we are worried about what ought to be in us, and the Lord already knows what's going on and wants us to draw near to him honestly and truly. And that's exactly what David's going to do tonight in this little prayer, starting in verse 12. He says, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears. David's words here are more emotional than they are suggesting that God doesn't hear prayers, right? I mean, if you were reading these on face value, you might come to the conclusion. If this was the only you know, passage of the Bible you had, you might think, oh, does, does this God maybe not hear your prayers? But that's not what David is really talking about because the king himself was the one who wrote this in Psalm 145, the Lord is near to all who call upon him. And in Psalm 65, David refers to God as you who hears prayer. So it's clear even from David's writing that he knew the Lord as someone who listens intently and someone who responds to prayer. 
Um, David had a great confidence that God would hear him and that he would respond. But as we've been seeing in the last few weeks, David at this point in his life is in a time of depression and discouragement. He's being afflicted with some sort of illness and it's having a profound impact on his physical and emotional and spiritual life. And so here in this little prayer, he bears his heart, calling out to God, asking him to listen and to respond. Now for us, it does beg the question though, does God always hear our prayers? Does he hear every prayer? Well, the answer isn't quite as simple as yes or no, because on the one hand, God is all-knowing, of course, and he is omnipresent. He knows our thoughts before we think them. He knows our words before they ever leave our lips. That's a clear teaching from Scripture. But on the subject of prayer, we are told in the Bible in a variety of ways that there are circumstances under which God will not receive prayer from a person or a nation and that he won't respond to it. Uh, in fact, some you know Bible students identify upwards of 15 different scenarios under which God will not receive or answer a prayer. First and foremost, if a person is not a believer, if you're not a born-again Christian, you are not given the same kind of access in prayer that a Christian is. That's just the deal. Um, that the, the access of prayer, the gift of prayer, it is a gift for God's children. Now, in the Bible, it's very clear that when anyone calls out to God for salvation, the Lord hears them and responds. No matter what, he always hears those cries for salvation. Jesus said in John chapter 6, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. But when an unsaved person just praise in general for help in life or things unrelated to salvation, they have no guarantee from Scripture that their prayer is heard. So those sort of, you know, um, God, if you do this for me, I'll never whatever again. There's no guarantee from the Bible that the Lord is interested in that kind of prayer from an unbeliever, from an unbelieving heart, someone who hasn't turned from their sin or hasn't called out to Jesus Christ for salvation. In fact, uh, there's some very strong words for people who are outside of the family of God. The Bible tells us that God sets his face against those who are in unbelief. They are separated from God, and Isaiah actually says that God will not hear them. He says that in Isaiah chapter 59. But the restrictions on prayer do not only apply to unbelievers. There are a variety of other warnings given that can impact our prayer lives as well and and our connection to God in prayer. For example, Proverbs 21, verse 13. Whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. Or here's one, Isaiah 1, 15. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Now, in that case, God was talking to uh, his special people, Israel, and calling them out on their violence and their oppression of the poor and widows and people like that, but still talking to his people in that uh, in that passage. Psalm 66, verse 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Uh, those are just a few of, of examples of, of passages like that that give a lot of strong warnings about prayer. Now let's turn to the New Testament. Do we find similar warnings in the New Testament or is this just some sort of Old Testament? We don't have to worry about that kind of thing. Well, that's never true of the Old Testament, right? Even those things that no longer apply to us like Levitical code and those sorts of things, they're still 
things we can learn from that and principles and ideas that the Lord wants to reveal to us. But should can we just dismiss all of those things? Oh, Isaiah, he's just talking to the nation of Israel. Oh, and Solomon, he's just giving sort of a general idea. Can we sweep all those things away? Well, let's turn to the New Testament there and see if we find any similar warnings. So here's what James said in his letter. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Or 1 Peter 3, 7, where a specific warning is given to Christian husbands. Peter wrote, Husbands, likewise, dwell with your wives with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, notice that none of these warnings have anything to do with a style of prayer or your physical posture in prayer or a method of prayer or anything like that. It's not that if you fill out the form incorrectly, God is going to bounce your prayer back to you, right? And refuse to receive it. Have you ever done that on like an important form? I do it all the time. We do it all the time online when you're filling out a form and you hit submit, 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 submit. And you have to find the little red X. You forgot to fill this out. You forgot to select Mr. or Mrs. And you go and you click it and then submit. You forgot to give your phone number. And you click it and then you're doing all of that. But that can be, it's also true of, of, um, Legal forms, too. Uh, from time to time, I've had the privilege and joy of officiating a wedding. And the one thing, the one job that the witnesses at the wedding have, if any, who here has signed a wedding license as like a witness, right? They have one job to do, okay? You have to sign your name and keep it in the box. There's like this big warning on it and there's this big paper that comes with the wedding license. And so the few times that I've officiated a wedding, I bring the witnesses in there. Bride and groom have already signed. It's all done. The ceremony's over. You have one job to do. Here's what I need you to do. Write your name, sign your name, date. That's it, okay? And I tell them every time, read this right here. Keep it inside the box, Right? Because it tells you right there, if you go outside the box, the county clerk might bounce it back and say, nope, invalid. So I remember a wedding I did a while back, and I did my whole spiel. And I, I, I belabor this point to the point that it's annoying to people, I'm sure, that they're thinking, this guy just kept talking about how I have to keep it in the box. But I keep saying it over and over again. Oh, yeah, yeah, we get it. Okay, who's going first? Okay, I'll go first. Like you signed all over, like outside the box. And I thought, well, I'm going to send it in. Uh, We'll see what happens, I guess. (laughs) When the bride and groom call me and say, hey, this got bounced back, I'll say, talk to your friend who didn't listen. So that's not what these warnings about prayer are about. It's not that the Lord is like, you have to do a certain formula, otherwise your prayers are hindered. That's that's never uh, the case at all. Um. All of these warnings have to do with the state of the heart, right? Or the refusal to live in obedience to God. And Jesus talked a lot about this with the Pharisees, right? They were doing all of their so-called spiritual things. And he says, hey, all of that stuff that you're doing and you're, you're, you know, you're praying. He, he used that object lesson of the Pharisee who came in to pray and thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this man over here. And the Lord said, he's not going away justified because look at his heart and look at his behavior and look at his unwillingness to obey the will of the Lord. And so all of these warnings uh, that we take from the Bible about 
our prayer lives and how they could potentially be hindered, even as Christians, have to do with the state of our heart, have to do with our willingness to obey, whether we're regarding iniquity, evil in our hearts, or whether we are submitted to the Lord and going His way. Now, uh, David, we know, was in a time of discipline because of some disobedience. We're not told exactly what it was, but we took a look at that last time. And so here, as he works through the thoughts of his heart, remember, that's what he's doing. This all started because he said, I had these thoughts in my heart, these frustrations and these just difficulties. I've had this disconnect with God. I, I need to pour my heart out, but I'm worried about how that might be perceived by the unbelieving world and all of that. So he's working through the thoughts of his heart during this frustrating time. And he's feeling that hindrance that we're warned about in some of the passages that I've been referencing. Now, of course, God had not abandoned him. The Lord was not being silent in the sense that he had withdrawn from David. Uh, The Lord did hear and would respond. David knew that to be true in his theology and in his faith, but his words here in verses 12 and 13 are the outpouring of a heart in distress. And the Lord was willing and able to receive a prayer like that. But here's an encouragement for us, some uh, bright light in a dark passage. Notice that it says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. David uses the name Yahweh there. It's God himself who's on the other end of the line. He doesn't just send us to voicemail like I do when people call me voicemail. Sorry if, you, if that's been you, but uh, he doesn't send us to voicemail. He doesn't have some assistant take the call. Uh, he doesn't have some, you know, temporary, you know, intern field in that for him. He doesn't categorize us into groups like first class and coach, right? Wow, you're a coach. You're, you're not a platinum select member, so we'll get to your prayer. Your cue time is 30 to 80 minutes, right? None of that's happening. He himself hears your prayers and he himself will respond. Yahweh, the king of heaven and earth, he loves to take your calls and is waiting to hear from you day after day. In a sense, by our way of thinking, the Lord is waiting by the phone, waiting for you to call. I can't wait for Gene to call me today. I can't wait for him to talk to me. I gave him this gift. I gave him this, you know, this avenue by which he could talk to me. It's like, you know, it's like if you give your kids walkie-talkies, say, hey, you, now you can talk to me on there. And they get all excited, and you want them to try it out and hear what they have to say. And the Lord is just waiting for us to communicate with him. He's not bothered by us. He's not annoyed with us. He's not too busy for us. He's waiting to hear you call out to him. Now, David continues, verse 12. He says, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner, as all my fathers were. Now, we heard a great sermon on this topic, the topic of being God's pilgrim, a few weeks ago on Sunday morning. It's from Exodus 12, 29 to 42. You can find it by going on the website, calvaryhanford.com slash straight out of Egypt. Okay, you can listen to that. For tonight, we're reminded that we have a special relationship with God. It's a relationship described in a variety of ways on the pages of Scripture, father and child, master and servant. But here we have that uh, familiar image of the pilgrim, which pops up again and again in the Bible. David uses the terms here in a couple of ways, or at least it gives us a couple of thoughts to think. He uses terms that had legal significance in the Mosaic law. Stranger and sojourner were official categories which described and designated temporary residents in the land of Israel who enjoyed protected status. 
Okay, they may not have been children of Abraham, but the Lord extended protection and grace to them uh, if they joined in and were strangers and sojourners. But the terminology isn't just legal. David also means it to be historical. What does he say there? As all my fathers were. And we think all the way back to Abraham, the first of God's special pilgrims, the first of the patriarchs, right? And from Abraham flowed an unbroken line of generation after generation, person after person, family after family, tribe after tribe, to whom God had been faithful. Not just to protect, but to guide. And most of all, the Lord was faithful to be with them as they lived out their pilgrimage. I love how David adds in there, I am a stranger with you, right? It's a, such an important little phrase that he tacks on the end. The story of the Bible is the story of God wanting to be with human beings. That's how it started in the garden. That's how it ends in Revelation 22. And in between, on the pages of Scripture, we see God walking with Abraham and the Israelites through the wilderness and the kings and the prophets and the exiles. And then God came in the ultimate act of witness, the incarnation, right? So that he could be Emmanuel, God with us. It's this theme that keeps happening over and over and over. Of course, Jesus was going to ascend into heaven, no longer walk in the incarnation during this period of human history. He's in heaven, the God-man forever, but that's where he is. But what did he say? Before he left, he comforted us with this amazing promise, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And now we as Christians live with the Holy Spirit indwelling our hearts until we are finally with the Lord face to face in eternity. And so God with us is all over the Bible. And it is a witness that nothing can separate us from. We're assured of that uh, in the New Testament. And that witness is described as a walk that the Lord is leading us on. It is a pilgrimage full of growth and progress and confirmation. Now David closes us out in verse 13. Remove your gaze from me that I may regain strength before I go away and am no more. Commentators make sense of this strange and sad request by classifying it with some of Job's statements during his immense suffering, or when Peter fell before Jesus in that dramatic scene, and what did he say? He said, depart from me, for I am a wicked man, I'm a sinful man, you're going to have to leave. Now, in Peter's heart, he didn't actually want Jesus to leave. There were times in the Gospels where people came to Jesus and said, hey, get out of here. We really don't want you to be around anymore. We think of when he uh, healed the demoniac of the Gadarenes, right? All the demons went into the pigs, the pigs went over into the ocean, and all the people of the city came out, and instead of celebrating the deliverance of the man and falling before Jesus, worshiping him as God, they said, we want you to leave. Get out of here. Please depart from us. Very different scenario between Peter falling before the Lord and those people saying, please leave. Uh, And yet they both sort of said, depart from us, and And so uh, that's how uh, this is categorized by commentators here, David's statement. Derek Kidner wrote this, God knows how to treat a plea like this, speaking of David's words in verse 13. He says, the very presence of such a prayer in the scripture is a witness to God's understanding. He knows how men speak when they are desperate. 
And so the Lord can differentiate between the anguish of, of a man like Job or David here or Peter realizing his iniquity before a holy God and those people who are actually rejecting him, right? And so the, the people in the gatherings there, they were rejecting Christ. Peter and David and Job, they're not rejecting Christ. They're just face to face with their iniquity and with the holiness of God and realizing that, man, it's like Isaiah, I'm undone. Like I'm in trouble here. And so that's how we would categorize this sort of sad uh, closing verse of the psalm. David felt that death was at the door and rooted in this final prayer is the hope that he would be able to return to his life once again with strength and ability to praise and serve and glorify the God he loved so much. And that too has been a theme from the start of the song. David's concern about the testimony of his life and how it preaches to those who are outside the family of God. And then the song ends. It's just over. It's not really a redeeming line here at the end. And all of this, we're trying to look through the lens of, of how these songs are dedicated to Jeduthun in a special way. He's the only man, the only person in all the book of Psalms that has Psalms directed to him specifically, addressed to him, associated with him. And we imagine David drawing the ink after he wrote this song and rolling up the scroll sending it over to Jejuthin, personally addressed, therefore forever associated with him. He would be given the song with instructions to go and prepare it, present it to all of God's people that they might sing it and make it their own. And as, as I've been thinking over the last few weeks now, I wonder what Jejuthin first thought of Psalm 39. This is the first thing we talked about a few weeks ago. What would you think if this was the song that was delivered to you, dedicated to you, with you had your name written on it? A song that would forever bear your name, even though it was born out of someone else's heart, right? When, when he presented this, that's not his song at first, right? It became his song. Uh, we know from the testimony of Scripture, as we saw the first time we looked at him, that he was faithful to execute his duty and to present this song with excellence and with dedication, I'm sure with a great amount of skill and passion. You know, I'm guessing that most of us would be surprised to learn that some of the most career-defining hits of many artists were actually covers of someone else's song. Let's do a little back and forth here, okay? I'm going to say, musician, you tell me what song they're known for. Whitney Houston, what song is she known most for? Come on, you can do it. No one's going to attack you. I will always love you, right? Not her song. Dolly Parton recorded it 18 years prior to Whitney Houston. Most of you probably knew that. How about this? Aretha Franklin, what's her big song? Not her song. Uh, it was recorded by Otis Redding two years prior to her recording. Joan Jett. Come on, Joan Jett. I know somebody listens to Joan Jett in here. No, the other one. I love rock and roll. God bless you, Jacob Kelso. Not her song. It was recorded by a British band called Arrows six years prior to her. Cindy Lauper. Not her song. <laughs> Girls just want to have fun. Not Cindy Lauper's song. It was written and recorded by a dude, Robert Hazard, four years before. <laughs> hey, it happens in Christian music too. If I asked you what your favorite David Crowder song is, probably some of you might say How He Loves, right? I love how he does How He Loves too. Not his song. It's a cover. In fact, the song was first written and recorded by a fellow named John Mark McMillan. And so... That's all fine. We don't really care, right? Do you care that Aretha Franklin covered R-E-S-B-E-C-T? Nobody cares. B- because 
whether she was the first to record it or not, whether she wrote it or not, it doesn't really matter because you know what? That song became hers. Cindy Lauper owns Girls Just Want to Have Fun. Whitney Houston owns I Will Always Love You. All due respect to Dolly Parton fans. You know, uh, they, they belong to those songs. Those songs belong to them, right? That whole list of songs and others that I cut out, they're defining. They're forever attached to the artists who covered them. They became part of who those people were. Those were songs that were so defining that those people couldn't go and play shows anywhere else, right, without singing that song. If you went and saw Aretha Franklin, what song are you going to hear before the night's over? R-E-S-P-E-C-T. And if you didn't, you'd be left scratching your head. What's going on? Why didn't they sing their song? And I'm sure, you know, these people who have these mega hit songs, I'm sure it just grates on them sometimes to have to play it night after night, but they do because it becomes part of who they are. They belong to the song as much as the song belongs to them. And what we want to do as we look through these Jejethan Psalms is put ourselves in his place and remember that we are given songs to sing through our lives as servants of our King, King Jesus. They may not always be the melodies that we were hoping to play, but they are given to us specifically as the Lord prepares testimonies and gifts and callings and opportunities. He has each of us in mind and delivers them to us for his glory and our growth with our name written on specific songs. His purpose is to forever associate us with Christ, right? To make us Christ-like, so much so that he works day in and day out to just shape us and form us into that image and bring forth those wonderful melodies that he sees fit to bring forth out of our lives. As part of that process, the Lord gives us the scripture, songs like Psalm 39 to define who we are. Through our lives, we want to be singing the truths that we learn here and throughout his word. Some of the themes we learn here in this particular song, that life is short but full of meaning in the hands of the Lord, not the fleeting quest for riches like we see out in the unbelieving world, but an ongoing relationship of grace and glory and intimacy with our Creator. He's a king who we can talk to openly and honestly at any time. He's a king who will correct our missteps, a king who makes something out of the relative nothing of our lives. He's a king who listens, who loves, who delivers, and who gives strength to his people, even during our darkest days. Amen. Amen. 